We're going to read this morning from Matthew chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 12. So if you'd like to turn to that, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And I'll do the right thing and read out of the Bible and the translation that you'll have on the screens before us. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the Lord, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. May God bless this reading of his word. Well, good morning and happy Boxing Day. Wow. Maybe it's Merry Boxing Day. It it sort of doesn't work, does it? It's like we're back to just another day. So what? It is Boxing Day. And... uh, We're here the day after Christmas and it's like we've fallen off the back of all the excitement and everything like that. And uh, when you think about leading up to Christmas, I shared this with one of the other services that from November to December this year, Australians spent $5 billion on Christmas. $5 billion in Australia alone. It's insane. It's absolutely crazy. And so we come out this side of Christmas and reality starts to hit home for so many people. Somehow I've got to find a way to pay off that credit card debt. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we've got to work out something. Please don't mishear me. I do not have a credit card debt from Christmas. Will never happen. We've also got to line up at all the shops. Some people will be lining up today. Hello to those of you online who are standing in queues for the Boxing Day sales. It's good to have you with us. Thank you for tuning in. You'll be there for hours, so uh, this service will be long over. But we're lining up. We have to return those unwanted gifts and everything like that, don't we? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. We need to take a New Year's resolution, and I did hear another pastor speak just how much he loved the Christmas food. In fact, he mentioned it four times in two services. So perhaps if we've enjoyed that Christmas food just a little bit too much, we have to take that New Year's resolution in order to overcome that issue and problem. Then we must make a mental note as well to ensure that we don't invite Uncle Bill to Christmas again next year. I mean, that was just flat-out embarrassing, wasn't it? And he ain't ever coming again. People have those types of relatives sometimes. But seriously, in my opinion, there's too much focus on the wrong things at this time of year. There's too much focus on that which doesn't really matter. And if we focused on the right thing, 
Today should be a day where we can continue in enthusiasm and excitement because our God will never leave us. Our God will never forsake us. He is always with us. We've just celebrated his birth. He's coming to this earth. And that ain't going to change until he returns and takes us to be with glory in him. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at digging into this passage of scripture a bit. And we're going to, I want you to pay particular attention to the different reactions of those involved in this reading. And then think about how that applies to you and your life. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. You are an almighty and all-powerful God. I thank you, Lord, that you will never leave us and never forsake us. I thank you that we are given your word and your word speaks to us through power of Holy Spirit. And Lord, I just pray this morning the truth of your word will be revealed to each and every one of us, those in the auditorium, those online, Lord. We just want to hear from you. I want to hear from you, Lord. So speak through this passage, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this is a very complex issue, isn't it? A very complex topic, the wise man. I should have called it something profound, but there it is. That's what it is. And so, let's get into this. And the first verse that we read from this passage, when I turn on my little clicker, is, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise man from the east came to Jerusalem. We've got a bit of a problem here straight away, haven't we? Because I know there's a number of you who are sitting there who are singing that song in your head. We three kings from Orientar bringing gifts. We travel so far. Doesn't add up to what we've got here, does it? It's actually in contrast. It's very different to what Scripture actually says. And Scripture never says that there's three kings anywhere in Scripture. It doesn't even say that there's three. And so... What we know is that these wise men came. They weren't actually ever kings and they weren't considered to be kings until much after, a couple of centuries actually, after Jesus' birth. And so it's traditionally said that there was three kings because they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh, but nowhere does it say there was three. Now don't hear me wrong, there could have been three. It's highly unlikely, but there could have been three. And because we're not told in scripture, we can't nail this down. But because of the way people travelled and everything at that time, and particularly this group of individuals, it's most likely that there was about a dozen of them, a dozen wise men, 12 to 14 in fact, who actually travelled at this time to Jerusalem. And it wasn't only them, they would have had a large entourage. These guys were people who were influential. These are guys who, who uh, had a status within their home country. And so they had this large entourage coming with them who would have provided for them, cooked for them, protected them, actually guarded them. And so this was a very substantial party of people that travelled to Jerusalem at this time. And those attendants would have tried to make that trip as pleasant as possible for them. And as I said, it would have been quite a substantial group. They would have actually stood out. People would notice them. And we have that name too. And I've heard so many different translations. No one can agree on what these guys are called. We'll just go with magicians, shall we? But some people call them magi. Some people call them magis. I've heard it said that it should be magi. So let's just go away from that. And from now on, we'll call them wise men. So we can be in agreement to that because we can all pronounce that correctly. And so, as I said, these men were leading figures in the religious courts of their country. They were able astrologers and uh, would have had various forms of scientific, uh, diplomatic and religious practices in their work. And so if we were to give them a job title, possibly be something along the lines of a science, math, literature priest. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Clears everything up for us there. 
But these guys are important. They're very influential people in their home country. And they came to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they've only got one question. And that question is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's interesting, isn't it? I'd imagine these guys coming. These guys are excited. These guys are overjoyed at the prospect of encountering this boy who has been born king of the Jews. And they didn't go to Herod. They didn't go to influential people there. I'd imagine the first person they come across close to Jerusalem, they're like, hey, where's the king of the Jews? The guy that's just been born. And you imagine these people going, well, Herod's sort of king of the Jews, but he's not just been born. He's in his 70s. What are you talking about? And so they continued to move on and they kept asking more and more people where this king of the Jews is, the one who has just been born. I must have really confused everyone. No one knew anything about it. Could, could you imagine what it was like for them as well? They've travelled so far in order to worship this king and no one knows anything about him. Perhaps they began to doubt themselves. But they had seen his star. I wonder why it was his star. I wonder what stood out about that star where they went, you know what, this is actually about that guy, the king of the Jews that we've heard about, and we're going to follow him. But these guys were astrologers, remember, very able astrologers. And so for some reason, this star stood out as unusual. This star stood out as unique. And if you look at the translation for stars in Scripture, it has a variety of things that it could actually be. Anything from a natural star, a star that we know, to angels. They're all called stars in Scriptures. So who knows what this is? And I'm, I'm not even going to give you any idea of what I think it is. Let's just go with the fact it was a pretty unique star that moved around and things like that. And so this was something different, something that they had never seen before. And because it was so different, because it was something they hadn't seen before, they said, this is a work of God. And because they saw it as a work of God, it seems that they would have been prompted to go back to those scrolls that they had. And yes, they had scrolls. They had some of the writings of uh, the Israel nation at that time. They had this collective knowledge and the history. If you remember that in Daniel 2.48, it tells us that Daniel was made chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. When Daniel was back there and he translated the king's dream and everything like that. And so he became the chief prefect over all those wise men. Do you think he would have taught them a thing or two about his own faith? Do you think he would have provided them with scrolls and writings about his God? And so this is filtered down in time and they've still got those scrolls and writings. So these guys see something which is unique, something which can only be attributed to God. And they go back to the scrolls and what do they find out? They find out that this guy, this baby was going to be born in Bethlehem. And that one of the signs would be a star. And so they choose to go. They know the words of Daniel. And they've got an interest in this coming king. But they consider this to be the time when the baby would come and would be born. And this baby is important. So important, they drop everything. And they pursue him. They go to worship him. And they considered this child to be a king. No ordinary king. He had been prophesied about. And when they think about the star, they know creation has been moved in order to worship him as well. And they come to worship him. But it's not all rosé. There's a bit of trouble brewing, isn't there? 
And they're asking everyone that they encounter where this Jesus is. Well, they didn't say Jesus, but where this baby is. They wanted to worship him. And the more people they ask, the more people start talking about it. And finally, Herod, hing, Herod the king hears about it. Now, Herod is a wonderful guy, isn't he? We all know that. Yeah, but Herod's really worried. And he's troubled by the fact that this is being said. And as I said, that's really not unusual for Herod at all. This guy is totally paranoid. He, he is concerned that anyone who has any power, any following or anything like that is a challenge to him. And so he just puts them to death. I mean, that's how you deal with people you don't like, I suppose, and people who challenge you. And Joseph, Josephus, sorry, the Jewish historian, says that Herod was capable, crafty and cruel. That was his description of Herod. And it's an apt description. Uh, Herod was also a great builder and, and he built incredible projects. He did those for the Jews. He did those for the Gentiles. He did it for whatever. He built pagan temples and everything as well. And so he built all these structures in order to win the favour of the people. And everything he did was just to keep himself in power. And he was so paranoid though, his sister Salome starts feeding him information about his wife. His wife was possibly the only one he ever truly loved. And he gets fed all this information, misinformation about his wife. And so Herod slaughters, murders his wife, her two sons, her brother, her grandfather, her mother. And that's the way Herod is. He doesn't let anyone or anything who's gaining popularity to stand in his way. He's not the rightful heir or king of the throne. He is not even a Jew. He's been placed there by the Romans. And so when he hears that this one has been born king of the Jews, he's really freaking out. Because he knows if people acknowledge that, he will be displaced. He will be overthrown. And so he's troubled. He's very troubled. The language used by the wise man is, this child was born king. He was natural. He was legitimate. And he had a claim to the throne. He wouldn't need to be elected. And all of Jerusalem is troubled with King Herod. Can you know why? It's not because of the baby Jesus. It's because of Herod. And Herod is irrational. And it wouldn't be past Herod to line up a whole heap of the Jews and just slaughter them because of this declaration. And that is why they're concerned, because he is so irrational. And so Herod calls the chief priests, the scribes of all the people, and he inquired where the Christ was to be born. And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea. So it is written in the prophet. And so Herod's greatest concerns are revealed to him by these guys. And these guys that he brings to him are the Jewish Sanhedrin. They're the Jewish tribunal in Jerusalem. And they confirm what the prophet Micah said in Micah 5.2. And this was predicted over 700 years before Christ was actually born. And it says that this king would be born in Bethlehem. And Herod sees that everything he has is being threatened by this child. He suffered great sacrifice for the role that he has. And he wasn't about to let one child ruin that. And he tells the wise man that he too would like to worship the king. So go and find him and then return to me and let me know where this baby is so I too can worship him. But it wasn't worship that Herod had in mind. 
He wanted to kill this legitimate king and protect what Herod foolishly thought was his. It wasn't worship, it was destruction that he was thinking of. And also in the story, we have these chief priests and scribes. And I find it amazing when I think about these guys and their actions and interactions here. These are the ones who've been teaching about the coming promised Messiah. These are the ones who are telling the people to look out for this and look out for that. Beware, because Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. They know this stuff inside out and back to front. And that is clearly evident when Herod comes to them and says, what is it about this baby? Where is he to be born? They don't have to scurry off and get their scrolls. They don't have to check the records. They can tell him straight up exactly where Jesus is to be born because they know this is what they teach. But these guys, as we know from later scripture as well, when Jesus interacts with them, they have this appearance of being holy. They have this attitude and well, their attitude and reaction shows that they're not really followers of God. That the life they're living, this religious life, is by word only. It's not reflected in their actions. Their actions actually betray them. Think about what's happening here. This incredible entourage has arrived. It would, of course, disturb regardless of who they are. This is not a normal situation. And they come speaking about supernatural signs and signs which confirm Scripture. They've travelled at least 1,600 k's with this burning desire to worship the true king of the Jews. Bethlehem is about 8 k's from Jerusalem, so it's not that big a place to travel. You'd think that these religious leaders would be like, you know what, we've got to go and check this out. We've got to go and see what this is all about. And even if it is fake, we want to know. And what do they do? They do zip. They do nothing. They're not interested. Israel trusts these guys to teach them the truth and educate them about significant and important events. And the long-awaited Messiah would have to be top of that list. They should be passionate about this. They're aware of all the signs concerning Jesus, and yet they choose to do nothing. They know, but they're not moved to action. Why is that? And of course, we can only speculate. We're not told clearly in Scripture. But I believe that they just loved the role that they had. They loved the position they were in. They loved the authority. They loved walking through the marketplace and people acknowledging who they were. And they weren't willing to give that up either. And these guys knew scripture very, very well. But perhaps, foolishly, they'd arrived at what they believed Messiah should be like. And for this child to be born in the way he was, was counter to what they thought Messiah should do. And so Jesus didn't fit into their preconceived ideas. But the bottom line here is, they may have been talking the talk, but when their positions were challenged, which surely it is when Messiah comes, when they need to make a stand, they fail to honour God. They fail to honour his word. And so the wise men move on. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the child, sorry, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And as I said, these guys were possibly a bit shocked 
beginning to question whether they got this all wrong. They've come to the king now, the king of the Jews. They've spoken to him. He knows nothing about the child who was to be born. Then praise God, these religious leaders come in. They will know and they confirm that the baby is to be, to be born in Bethlehem, but they know nothing about him either. How is this even possible? How would this Messiah come and the religious leaders not know? And I can imagine that they doubt it a little. And they come outside and the star rises again. And they see the star, it goes before them. And they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. What an incredible term. This is over and above anything you could expect. They became excited again. There was this exuberance about them and they pushed on. They wanted to get to Jesus. They wanted to see it. And this, child, this star comes and it rests over the place where Jesus was. And these guys, they go into the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Think about this. They enter a house. It's not a stable. It's not a cave. It's not an inn. They entered a house. Mary and Joseph have moved on. This is well after the birth of Jesus. They saw the child, no longer a baby, at the very least a toddler, 12 months plus, no older than two. And I want you to think about, again, this incredible entourage. They arrive in Bethlehem. Bethlehem at this stage was a village of about 3,000 people. And this massive entourage arrives at Bethlehem and they come to the house of Mary and Joseph. Now, we know Mary and Joseph weren't that well off because of the sacrifice they made for Christ's birth. And, and so we have this house which at the most was a two-room house. Most likely it was only one room. And this is a house where Mary and Joseph would be in there with Jesus and if it was at night, then the animals would be in a corner of that house as well, if they had any animals. If it was a two-room house, well, that second room would be where the animals were and Mary and Joseph and Jesus would be in the main room of the house, which would be half your bedroom generally. They weren't big houses. And this huge entourage arrives and these guys go into the house. I can only imagine them going in one by one or maybe two at a time or something like that. And as each of them see Jesus, they don't think about the fact that there's animals here. They don't think about the poor environment that's there. They don't even think about Mary and Joseph. They see Jesus and they prostrate themselves before him. They throw themselves on the ground. They worship him. This is all about Jesus, nothing else. Nothing else. And after they worship him, they open their gifts. Gold, frankincense and myrrh. And we could go on about how gold is the gift of kings, frankincense is the incense of a great high priest. And myrrh is that which is used for the burial. But these gifts were a blessing. It allowed Mary and Joseph to sell them when they had to go to Egypt when they had to flee. But these wise men came with one purpose. I don't think they fully understand who Jesus is. I don't think they knew everything. I don't think they understood what he would do, but they knew they should worship him. They knew that he was king of the Jews. And these guys were not Jews. 
These guys were Gentiles. And I think this opens up that whole concept and idea that God wants to emphasize again and again and again that when Jesus came, there is no Gentile, there is no Jew. We are all one. Jesus came to die for each and every person. These guys were not part of the Israelite nation. They were not worshipping God the way the Israelites did. They didn't come for the feasts and the sacrifices. But Jesus came for them, Jew and Gentile alike. He came to level the playing field and to offer all of humanity salvation. And so these guys come to worship. I want you to think about those people in the story that we've spoken about. Herod. Herod was this guy who was violently opposed to the potential of a child-born king of the Jews. And we know he gives a decree to kill all the children born in Bethlehem, two years and under. With about 3,000 people, that would have been seven to eight children in Bethlehem at the time. The religious leaders, the wise man coming, it seems like they just went back to doing what they'd already done before. Nothing changed for them. They didn't even want to go and see what this baby was all about. And for me, it reminds me of the church of Laodicea in Revelation. These guys are neither hot nor cold, and Jesus will spew them from his mouth. And then there were the wise men, excited, exuberant, wanting to worship Jesus, whatever the cost. I think in this day and age, there's people just like Herod, isn't there? You speak to them about Jesus and they oppose violently. They want nothing to do with it. They can sometimes threaten. And we've seen in other parts of the world as Christians speak about Jesus, they're martyred for their faith. There's still Herods in the world today. When we think about the religious leaders, there's still people who go through the motions, isn't there? There's people who are living the Christian life who can fool me, who can fool Pastor Darrell, who can fool those around you here but you don't really know Jesus. And that's just like those rulers, the religious leaders of the day. And then there's those who, for the lack of a better term, never get over Jesus. We're just caught up in the awe and wonder of who he is and we pursue him constantly. We want to know him more. And sure, we stumble and fall. We have our issues and problems, but we know Jesus stands there with his arms wide open to welcome us back. And we pursue him just as he pursued us. And we want to know him more and more. Think of that day back then. There was a lot of hype, a lot of agitation around Jerusalem. Not unlike this Christmas period that we've experienced. I don't think they had Boxing Day sales in Jerusalem uh, back in that day. But I want you to think about what occupied your minds for the last few days. What was the things that were pressing? And when I think about what was pressing for so many people, I can't stop thinking about Mary and Martha because so many of us would have been worried about that family lunch, that family dinner. Everything had to be perfect. We had to make sure that the prawns and seafood were fresh. We had to make sure that the roast was cooked just right. We had to make sure that the puddings and everything were put together correctly. And we were so concerned about that that Jesus just seemed to get pushed into the corner. And everything that we did, none of it, none of it was for Jesus. It was for us and it was for our family and our friends. And don't hear me saying that that's wrong. What's wrong is pushing Jesus to the corner. Why can't he be central to that? Why can't he be a centerpiece on the table? Why can't he be the topic of conversation? And so we focus on what doesn't matter so much. 
What should be first and foremost is the announcement that the angels gave to the shepherds. Luke 2. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day, in the city of David, a saviour, the Christ, your Lord, is born. Herod violently opposed the news of this king and saviour, the Lord. And the religious leaders chose to ignore him. Herod was ice cold to the idea. The religious leaders were tepid. And when you reflect on the birth of Jesus, are you going to be like Herod? Are you going to be like the religious leaders? Or are you going to be like the wise men? And are you going to constantly bow to Jesus? Are you going to accept him as king? Are you going to accept him as your Lord and Saviour? If you do not know Jesus, I want you to hear me very clearly. The story of Christmas isn't a series of nice nursery rhymes. It isn't something we made up. It is an account which deals with death and life. Yours. That's what Christmas is about. And sure, Jesus came, Jesus lived, he lived a life as a man and he was crucified. But he did it for you. This is about your life and your death. Jesus came in order to put us back into right relationship with God. He did everything that was required. He did that by living a perfect life, dying in our place on the cross. And his death imparts his righteousness on us when he took our sin upon himself. When we accept him as Lord and Saviour, that transaction occurs. And we're going to stand in glory, not because of who I am, not because of what I have done, but all because of what Jesus has done. And he imparts his righteousness on me. And when God looks on me, he sees righteous. Again, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And we know that Jesus took that sin upon himself on the cross. He was dead and buried. And on the third day, he rose again. And he rose to prove that he had victory over sin and death. And the only question we need to ask is, do you believe that? Jesus' arrival on this earth demands a response. You can choose to worship him and follow him now, or you'll do it on that day in glory when we are told every knee will bow, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ as Lord. And what we as Christians have to make clear to our friends and to each other is that it doesn't matter how much you read your Bible. It doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how much you come to church. It doesn't matter whether you are baptised or not. It doesn't matter how many good works you do. None of that provides a favourable outcome when it comes to eternity. None of it. You are lost headed for hell, if that is all there is to your Christian walk. You are like the religious leaders of Jesus' time. The only foundation, the only true source of salvation is found in Jesus Christ. And the beautiful thing is, he makes it so easy for us. It's us who complicates things. I'm going to read a very well-known passage to you. It's just a couple of verses. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. One way to heaven. One way to forgiveness. One way to eternal life with God our Father. Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no other. Let's pray. Father God, I want to worship you. I know there's people here who want to worship you. And Lord, I don't want it to be about singing songs on Sunday. I don't want that to be my worship. I want to worship you with my life. And Lord, I just pray that those gathered here this morning, those gathered with us online, that'll be the desire of their hearts too, that they'll want to worship you with their very lives. And that, Lord, our lives won't become about what we can do for you. Our lives won't become about how I get better by serving, honouring, glorifying you. But we will all realise we are nothing, we have nothing, we can do nothing. And it is only in Jesus Christ that we are saved and the finished work on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we celebrated the birth of Jesus yesterday. But that doesn't, you can't celebrate that without the cross. One points to the other, Lord. And I thank you that Jesus' reason for coming was to save me, to save us. And that there's no one who cannot be saved if they'll turn to you and ask for your forgiveness and accept you as their Lord and Saviour. Continue to do your work here this morning, Lord, by power of Holy Spirit and into the coming days, weeks and months. Let us honour and glorify you with our very lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.